Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about Virgil Michael, who was a Benedictine monk from Collegeville, Minnesota. He's one of these big names in the liturgical movement that we keep talking about. Uh, you've heard us talk about Romano Guardini, Lambert Baudouin. We've even talked about Odo Kazel. But what's great about Virgil Michael is that he was American. When I think about big names in church intellect, I usually look towards Europe. But Virgil Michael was this Benedictine monk from America who ended up making big contributions to the documents of Vatican II. So without further ado, episode 37 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Here is something you should never say. Are you recording? Yeah. Here's something you should never <laughs> you say. You should never say it while being recorded. Pu- something you should <laughs> never say in public if you want to be credible. Do not say Father Virgil Michel. Oof. Oh, what do you say? His name is Virgil Michael, even though it's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L. This is like the thing that catches all the young liturgy people the first time they give a conference paper on this. Liturgy as, punks. Is as, it, uh, as, for, as Father Virgil Michel said, and everybody inside cringes and says, oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> is is it uh, French? What is the name? It's probably French somewhere, but he was an American, lived in Collegeville, Minnesota. So I don't know. For some reason, it's Virgil Michael. Not don't know why, but that's how it's pronounced. So uh, I, yeah, so we're talking about Virgil Michael today, and we're uh, saying it properly. And we're saying it properly. But uh, did you want to start with your anecdote? Or? I could do that. Yeah. So Virgil Michael. As Dennis will explain, is really kind of the father of the American liturgical movement. Uh, so very famous. It was not trained as a lit. He was not a liturgy guy by training. He was mm-hmm. uh, uh, not he even was, a liturgiologist. No, no, he was a philosopher. Right. He had a PhD from Catholic University of America in philosophy. Okay, uh, but but I mean, really, just uh, um, wrote beautifully, commonsensically, um, and a really great figure. Anyway. So I had this picture of uh, Father Virgil Michael in my office uh, in La Crosse, and one day one of the retired priests, uh, Father Mike uh, Merton, came in, and at the time he was like 85 years old, and uh, he looks up at my wall and says, "Oh, Father Virgil Michael," and I said, "You know, not not too many people know who he, who he died he in 1938." Yeah, all. not too many people oh, know, wow. know who he is, uh, especially you know um, what he looked like, and I said, "Well, how, how did you know?" how do you know about Father Virgil Michael? And he said, well, I was a seminarian studying at uh, Collegeville. Uh, I served his very last mass before he died. So wow. the seminarians would, you know, at the time, you know, each priest had to say his own mass privately and they would just kind of, the seminarians, uh, the servers would just kind of line up and as a priest came in, they'd step forward and serve for that mass and he got to serve for Father Virgil Michael um, the day he died, the day before he died, so... That's, wow. that's my, uh, what did they used to call it on David Letterman? My uh, brush with greatness? Oh, I don't, I don't you know. That? Your yeah. brush with someone who had a brush yeah. with greatness. Yeah. So. But you brushed yeah, with me all the time. Yeah, Chris, it wasn't so even your worry. brush. It was somebody else's brush. <laughs> as close as I might get. <laughs> all right, so Virgil Michael was a Benedictine monk, monk. at St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. Okay, and we've talked about um, 
you know, this liturgical movement in America. Do we want to maybe talk a little bit about what that was surrounding him? Yeah, sure. Well, a movement, as opposed to reform, a movement just means a bunch of people are thinking about stuff, they're having insights, either inspired by the Holy Spirit or of their own natural thoughts, that they look around and they say, well, something needs to be done. You know, I think every age has its own movements going on. We have our own kind of recovery. a lot of movements going on now, yeah. Right, for sure. And so... um, bunch of people get together and think about different things and he was one of the great thinkers and then eventually the church comes along and sifts all the thoughts of the various thinkers and then they make official changes and that's what the council second vatican council did so all these great thinkers kind of put all their ideas into a big bowl and then the second vatican council stirred it all up and turned it into a cake which yeah is like a gumbo, gumbo right exactly and so he was one of the great american thinkers there were there were different people in europe Lambert Baudouin, and we talked about Oda Kazel and, and some others. Um, but Did he, he study with Baudouin, do you remember? Not officially, but he visited Mont César um, in, in Belgium. Belgium, which was Baudouin's place. He also visited Maria Locke, which was Oda Kazel's place. So these guys were all on the same page, you know, kind of. They all knew something needed to happen. There needed to be some renewal. Right. Imagine if you got on a boat and went to Europe and you visited all the places where liturgical renewal was happening in this monastery and this monastery and you talked to this person and you came back and said, hey, you know, I saw this going on in Germany. Why don't we do that here? It's it's human beings learning from each other. We tend to think these great figures are somehow like mysteriously come down from heaven on a plate for us, but they're human beings who learn from each other and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but that they each put their own uh, uh, emphasis and uh, thumbprint on what they do. And Virgil Michael did this too. I mean, he gave the liturgical movement a unique American flavor when he brought it back to the country, one that was really uh, practically oriented. This is what we're, this is what we do as Americans, right? We, we know, we know how to get her done. We know. I wouldn't think when you think like America, you don't think like the best liturgical minds, you know, ever. I mean, a lot of this stuff came from Europe and, well, that's maybe a good way to say it. Uh, in, in, uh, it's a lot of liturgical minds uh, in Europe, but in the United States, there's liturgical doing. And so one okay. of the things that Michael was able to do was take, uh, I mean, and even in Europe, uh, there, were, there was different emphases in different, uh, among the different thinkers. But what Virgil Michael did when he brought the liturgical movement back to the United States was to make it very practical and very industrious and really to put it on the ground and implement it uh, in a concrete right. way. Right. He was an overachiever type, you know. Um, he was a philosophy professor, an English professor. He was a violinist. He was known for being a baseball star and a you know, great tennis player. <laughs> Uh, and he just had all this energy and all this intellectual capacity. And then he, he studies this stuff and goes to Rome and um, Europe. And then he comes back and says, we've got to do something. So he starts uh, the journal called Dorate Fratres, which is now called Worship. Which and that's, was, a part of the, that's a part of the Mass, right? Well, those words, pray, yeah. pray brethren, yeah. So mm-hmm. he took the words. Notice he didn't say you know, something about adeum or whatever. He said, pray brethren. He wanted the people. That it's, even the title of itself is an invocation for the people to and, pray. Because well, we talked about this for postures. We talked about um, the, in the new translation, we do not stand at the beginning of that statement. We stand after that statement is said, spoken by the priest, and then we stand up with our response. So that kind of fits in with what you're saying uh, in that podcast, like, you know, uh, he was doing it and implementing it. Yeah, and here's maybe another um, example of, of this of, of this doing. Uh, Father Virgil Michael's uh, biographer was another Benedictine named Father Paul Marx. Have you ever heard that name, Paul yeah. Marx? Yeah. Who went on to found Human Life International. So the biographer of Virgil Michael himself 
went out and translated uh, you know, the life of faith into actually doing concrete things on the ground. So again, just another example of... He also started the liturgical press, which is still in existence, and also Father, something... Father Michael. Father Virgil Michael did, yeah. And also something called the Popular Liturgical Library. These little bulletin sort of brochure things. Not to be confused with the unpopular liturgical <laughs> library, okay? We all know well, about Well, we don't that. know if it was popular, but it was for the people, so uh, the populace. And the idea was that the average people in the pew could learn uh, how to participate in the liturgy. So it was really not, it wasn't just a pointy-headed academic enterprise. It was a, um, a thing that was to be brought out to the people, which is really what Lambert Baudouin said. He said we had to democratize the liturgy, uh, not meaning that it was mob rule, but that the people should be able to do what the, all these people in the monasteries were learning and rediscovering. And so Virgil Michael's interesting. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on a guy named Orestes Brownson. Ever heard of Orestes Brownson? I have not heard of Orestes. Orestes is a first name? Orestes, the old Greek uh, Greek name, O-R-E-S-T-E-S, Orestes Brownson. Wow, I'll have to lock that away in the noggin for future children names. Well, there you go. I'd never heard of him until I uh, studied Virgil well, Michael. He died in 1876, but he was an American Protestant who converted to Catholicism. But what he liked about the American culture was that there was this um, freedom within the church in America. So in the European tradition, you know, the, the nobles or the king would sort of build the churches and provide everything, and the people just showed up and didn't have to do anything. But in America, people contributed to their own parishes. They run parish councils. They took votes. They did things that in a lot of um, sort of aristocratic societies, they didn't happen. So the idea that the members had a certain equality and there was this lived reality, that really influenced um, Virgil Michael so that he could take these riches of the liturgy and then have the people um, do it. And interestingly, sorry to interrupt you there. No, you. I, I was just going to interrupt you, so sorry, go ahead. Right over the door in our library here on the campus, University of St. Mary of the Lake, is the name Brownson, right over the inside of the door, uh, which was a pretty radical thing in 1925 to put Orestes Brownson's name. Really? Uh, yeah. Well, I've never noticed that. And then Wait, which door? The when you go into the library, into oh, the big the, reading Have you ever room, been to the, the library, the, Jesse? What is a library? <laughs> the Fian Memorial Library. It has all these names of great writers. So there's Venerable Bede and Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus and all these great. And then the last one after Newman is Brownson. So the American Catholic wow. identity is That's right great. there. Now, you're talking a lot about this um, you know, freedom to implement in America and things like that. Some might look at that and think, well, that sounds dangerous because... Um, you know, you can go maybe a little too far away from what the liturgy is intended to be when um, the people can get really involved but don't have the knowledge. So, well, that's why he did all this training. Right. You know, Jefferson founded, even though Jefferson hated big government, he founded the University of Virginia because he figured if you're going to have a democracy, it would be mob rule unless there were leaders who were trained in the ideals of democracy. So the same thing, these people had to be trained in the ideals of the liturgy and then they could live it freely and fully. Yeah, and too, I mean, the, the, the early liturgical movement, too, the movement was of the people towards the liturgy. It wasn't the liturgy towards the people, so that, you know, they would somehow uh, um, take it and change it and run with it, is I think maybe the way Yeah, you, we talked you about congregationalism. It wasn't that. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, it, it was an education and a formation of the people to live a liturgical existence. Kind of, there was a, a certain givenness to the liturgy, at least in the uh, early part of the liturgical movement. I mean, later there came to be uh, adjustments uh, sought for the rites. But uh, initially, and in the time of Virgil Michael, it was to form the people, to move the people into the liturgy. Now, let this be a warning to you. If you're an overachiever, sometimes Don't you, worry. You can, 
He had a nervous yeah. breakdown. Like a lot of liturgy people. If you care deeply about something and you have a lot of energy, you might uh, extend. What are the, the signs? I want to just be on the. I'll, I'll well, the first sign is you make a lot of puns <laughs> and a lot of <laughs> bad jokes that interrupt oh, other no. people when they're saying profound things. So, mm. so you just take a deep breath there. But you know what they did is they said, okay, you need a break, Virgil. Uh, and they sent him off to be a chaplain for some Native Americans, Chippewa Indians, as they would have been called then. And what he realized there was this close-to-the-land agrarian culture where people um, governed, they were governed, but, but with this kind of community spirit, and there was this deep care for the other. And he realized that sort of like the industrial society wasn't really doing that. So they say there are these three things that influence him, Lambert Baudouin, Orestes Brownson, and the Native American sort of poverty uh, of, of physical poverty that nonetheless led to this care for each other. And so he saw that this was going to be the answer, or at least he thought would be the answer to the decline of civilization and the culture that seemed to be dissolving everywhere with uh, war and World War I and the falling away from religion. So he's very interested in social regeneration or social reconstruction. This is what we now call social justice, but basically that culture had to be rooted in the life of grace. The life of grace came from the liturgy. You couldn't get the grace from the liturgy if you weren't prepared to do it and if it, you didn't understand what you were doing. And so this was the basis for restoration of the whole world. He has an article called, um, what is it? Liturgy, the, the basis of social regeneration. Yeah. And he has this famous uh, oft-quoted um, syllogism at the end of that article. I'm hoping you remember it. I don't. <laughs> it's do your best. Pius X says that the liturgy is the source of the true Christian spirit. Pius XI, and Pius XI was the Pope of Catholic action. Pius XI says the true Christian spirit is necessary for the renewal of culture or the world. Hence the conclusion, the liturgy is the necessary source for the, re for the renewal of culture in the world. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. It, it's actually very simple. If you want to live fully and in, in the life of grace, you go to the source of that grace, which is the sacramental life of God presented to you in the liturgy. And if you go to it in a half baked way, you're not going to get as much grace as you need. You won't be transformed and you won't love your neighbor as much. And so, uh, and he's about grace. He's the one, as far as I can tell, who really popularized this term Christ life. Right? Oh I yeah. Dennis, you say that all the time when you go to mass. Should, yeah. Do you? I hope this is great. I mean, I, he this says, I'm going to go up. get some Christ life. That's Virgil Michael right there. And, uh, you know, I, maybe we've mentioned this before on the, on the podcast, but you know, at least my formation, I was kind of led to think of grace as some kind of materialistic sort yep. of energy type yeah. of thing. But no, it's not that. It, it, it is a life. It is complete life. It is Christ's life. That's what grace is. It's not a thing, uh, but it's the life of a person. Right. So when you read Virgil Michael, he'll talk about... Um, pretty standard stuff, which is that the church is not fully sanctified yet. The people of the church are still being sanctified. So liturgy isn't so much a thing you watch as a thing you do. Christ's sanctifying action continues in the world as he offers the world to the Father and receives grace from him. And so the power of liturgy is to sanctify the hearts of, of people uh, and to offer the sacrifice of themselves. And this is a priestly power because Christ is the only one who can do it. And we join ourselves to that priestly power by participation, participation, participation. Act, active participation. Yes, active, conscious, fruitful, uh, and full uh, participation. And intelligent. And you have to know what you're doing. But it's a participation, he says, in the nature and energies of Christ. So there's participation in the right, certainly. Stand when you're supposed to stand, do you know, all the things we've said about um, posture but it's participation in the very energies of Christ and that this is the essence of the church. And we're not, he, in his time, he would say, we're not doing it. Um, and so we ought to do it. And he gives this very systematic 
uh, approach to all this in his 1937 book called The Liturgy of the Church. And, uh, Which is a book you, you should read, and it's probably good. It's very easy, and it's, you can get it as a used it, book. Can you? I don't think it's in print, but you can well, get it a used book uh, online pretty easily in the used book. What's the title again? The Liturgy of the Church, 1937, published by Macmillan, which is one of the big New York publishing houses. It wasn't some niche little um, publishing, publishing house. But I, I, we can just walk through one of his chapters in the, in the beginning. He says, worship is the, exor- the exercise of the virtue of religion. This can be your, your quiz, both of you. What's the virtue of religion? Anybody know? Worship. <laughs> worship is the exercise of the virtue of religion. Oh, what's the virtue of religion? Yeah. We think religion is a denomination that you belong to, but uh, it's the acknowledgement of the supreme excellence of God and the realization that you're not God. So you have to say, God, thank you for making me. You're God, I'm not. I'm I, not. I depend on you completely. We're not worthy. Totally. We're not worthy. Well, yeah, but in the good sense, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to, if you think you're God, you're not going to ask for anything from God. So it's about the uh, acknowledging your very nature. And so the idea is that you uh, direct all of your actions to give this full expression of that relationship. You don't walk around with your back to God saying, I don't need you. You go up to God and say, um, let me kneel down in front of you and, and ask you for what I need. The idea is that you'd be conformed to God's will by having your own will conformed to them. And here's where he starts to get into certain words. So, you know, we all talk about full, conscious, and active participation. Conscious, active. Conscious means you know what you are doing, and you're doing it intentionally. So um, if you walk down the aisle to get married, and you don't know what marriage is, you don't know who this bride is next to you, but there's someone with a gun behind you saying, do this or else, you're not married. It's not valid, and this is... Very good grounds for it. So enough about Chris's wedding, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, we we that's really hard to do because to be fully conscious and fully active and fully intellectual in the liturgy is very difficult, especially with my little daughter Agnes uh, wanting to just run around or do something. I mean, it's, right. it's hard to be conscious, but at least you know understanding this podcast and learning more about this, at least we can take that first step into know what right. we're doing. We'll even further, con skio, so skio is the, the root of like science or knowledge, but it's con, it's with, it's a knowing with others. It's not just knowing out of your own, the recesses of your mind, it's other people, you mentioned this podcast, but mm-hmm. I mean, other people, our parents, uh, the church, the mystical body, we learn what marriage is like from other people. It's not our own creation. We will learn what the liturgy is like from the church herself. So it's a consciousness that comes as a part of our formation from the right. outside. And it's most people, making. when they get married 30 years later, they said, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but I committed to it anyway. And you, and you stick with it and you learn more. My wife's only been married 18 years and she's saying that. She's, she, well, anyway, glad it worked You look out. like you've been married 50 years, Chris. <laughs> But the point of it is you don't have to have the highest bar of knowledge of every single thing like God does. You have to have enough knowledge to do what you're doing. And so if you don't know what you're doing, you just you can't do it properly. So this is why he's very interested that people turn their intellect and their will freely to God. And the way you do that is to know you're not God. God, you're God. I'm not. All right, I got that one down. That's so just... I take every desire of my heart <laughs> I heard and mind. Christophonic say, say once that uh, one of the differences between uh, us and God is God never thinks he's us. <laughs> so, anyway. But at the same time, we want to be God. And the first way to become like God is to know you're not yet there. And so uh, Virgil Michael says, intimate union with God is the way you become like God. So you, you have to take all of your thought, because we worship by the thought and intention and words 
I mean, that primarily that's how we worship. We say words to God that we mean both in our minds and our heart. That's the nature of uh, worship. We direct those things to God. Now, part of what he's getting at here is if you're alive in 1928 and the priest is at the altar saying the low mass in Latin and quietly, and you don't follow that because you don't have a missile or you don't understand Latin or you don't want to, and you do the rosary instead, well, the rosary is fine, but it's not liturgy. And so you're not directing your mind and heart and will to God. Now, there was always exceptions probably, people who were very literate in liturgy. But most of these liturgical reformers agree that most people weren't, and they didn't bring their mind and heart to the worship as That was going to be my question. I mean, he's he's doing these things, Virgil Michael, um, in um, the preconciliar world. And is this type of thought that, is this what leads to Vatican II or, okay. Well, Vatican II is the culling through of all these great ideas and realization that there's necessity. So these, so these people on the council are look are like weeding through these guys' writings and saying, "Oh yeah, let's they've they've been formed by these thinkers." Whoa, I didn't know that. I thought they were just you, you know, know. What would be a great project is a, what would you call it? like an annotated uh, constitution on the sacred liturgy, not simply to ecclesiastical documents, but if you could trace threads to different liturgical movement thinkers. I mean, you you would see some things that you hear people like Virgil Michael saying, almost uh, showing up verbatim in some of the Constitution. Right. Yesterday uh, in class, I dared the students, oh, not so much dared, but I, I challenged them to imagine, <laughs> you five, ten, whatever people, go have a conference and come up with five really important ideas that are so important that it sets fire to the whole world of the church across the country, other countries, and then finally all the fathers of Vatican II decide those ideas are so important. They have to be <laughs> the normative that, teaching of the entire That sounds church. like a movement to me. That's a movement, and it's not easy to do. And so you, you know, these people were very excited that they were recovering the deep truths that the early Christians knew, and that for various reasons we sort of lost uh, full understanding, and they wanted to get them back. And the idea would be we'd be all be transformed by divine life if we went to the well and drank deeply, not just a little mist um, sprayed or walking by the well itself and doing something else, but drinking from that actual well. And so people like Virgil Michael are saying, well, what is worship? How do you do it? And the first thing is, I'm not God. You're God. What do I need? What you can give me? How do I get that? I present myself. I ask you um, with requests of petitions and you give praise to God and thanks to God. This is the nature of liturgy itself. So he's famous for saying this line that there's no worship without intelligence. Oh, yeah. Father we, Martis here yeah, used to he, like that. And he had, a sign he had that, yeah, that picture up on the wall. And it's a little easy to misinterpret that, like, oh, yeah, hey, you, you're you uneducated people. You don't worship as well as we do. But that's not at all what it means. It means you have to know what you're doing. A rock can worship God in a very, very, very limited way. But a person can say, yes, God, I'm not you. Please give me what I need. I praise you, worship you, adore you. That's intelligence. Intellect is really in the capacity of intellect. And I think there is a line in the Constitution that says that pastors must help the people to understand what it is that they are doing as a prerequisite for their active participation in the liturgy. Right. Every time the word conscious appears in full conscious and active participation, this is what they're talking about. Know what you're doing. Because if you don't know what you're doing, you're not, you can't really be doing it fully. If someone says, hey, you know, throw this thing over there, why? I don't, I don't know, just do it. Well, then you do it and walk away. But if you know what you're doing and why, then you can do it better. Is that like the Sacrosanctum Concilium drinking game? Every time you, you see conscious consciousness and, and active participation, you take a drink. And you get slightly closer to unconsciousness in doing that. But you can't, you know, if you're passed out drunk, you can't worship, right? Because you're not forming your will and your intellect and you're therefore your voice. 
So he says the, the primis, primacy of worship is always interior. The acti- participation is always interior because you have to sort of take all the desires of your heart and mind and offer them to God and plead for him, uh, plead for them with him. And then you do external things to signify that, to sacramentalize that to the world. So I want uh, to adore you, Jesus. Okay, let me kneel down and adore you. But you don't just kneel and hope adoration happens. You adore and then you kneel to make that adoration. Yeah, but if you're drunk, you might accidentally fall prostrate. So... But that's not that intentional. Oh, that's okay. accidental, right? Okay. So there's a got it. You know the whole thing about how many monkeys in a room with a typewriter can eventually type up a, a Shakespeare play, but they have no intention to make a Shakespeare play. It's just an accident. It doesn't really count. What? How many monkeys does it take? A lot. Still working on there's, that. Yeah, there's, there's a big batch of monkeys somewhere. But uh, the he says man is body and soul, and you have to have the capacities of the soul, which are intellect and will, joined with your body. Um, and without doing this, he says, man is not doing his full religious duty to his father in heaven. So you say, oh, duty. That's a very, that's very much an old school concept. Like we owe God the virtue of religion. I must go or else. But he's trying to tweak the, the, the uh, scrupulous people to say doing this fully in the rites and everything you're supposed to do is in fact part of what you owe to God. And then religion you, is, a, and is associated of, with justice. And it's, that's it's kind a, of American as well, the, the obligation, the duty to your country. That, and so that, I think that fits well with, with the people in America and our, our mindset. Yeah, people might have been a little suspicious. Who is this reforming radical monk who's making me do things nobody's done for 400 years? He's telling you, no, no, no. This is actually what you're supposed to be doing and what you owe to God. And Chris, you said justice, right? Justice is giving... Giving another his due. Right, and it's, it's the duty to God to worship fully. And, of course, the results are, can you guess what the results are of, of proper worship? Uh, Christ's life. Christ's life, right? Christ's life. He <laughs> says God, God extends my, his love to the creature. It's going to be my answer for everything from now it on. It is the answer to everything. And, and what is love? It's the willing the good of the other. So love is not extend you know destruction to you it's i make you better that what is good for you i give you so it brings perfection to people in the sanctification and then it also it brings god glory because when we're glorified he's glorified and then the fruits in the daily life would be human beings would go out they'd pray more they'd be more patient with their children they'd be nicer to their coworkers. they would not declare war on the country next door yes dennis they would be nicer to their coworkers. <laughs> yeah. I better drink more deeply from Christ's life so I can <laughs> toler- that, tolerate your difficult personality. Or just so drink much. coffee. You'll be in a better mood. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm on the second <laughs> cup of coffee today, but it's not working too well. Uh, so that's kind of the little introduction. It's like the one-on-one relationship with God. But he takes it a little further to say the church is not a bunch of individuals getting sanctified alone. But in fact, there is a mystical body of the, the grouping of these people. The church is more like a, a city in the sense of everybody doing the same um, with the same mission. And man is social by nature and therefore requires social worship. So social worship, that means a 30-minute sign of peace with a lot of hugging and clapping and kissing. That's what I did in college. I mean, it was just like, you got to get to everybody. You got to get to Joe over there, Betty over there. Oh, definitely got to hug Gertie. She's a good friend. (laughs) Gertie. (laughs) Right. But what, what does it really mean to be a member of the mystical body? This is, you get this language in Vatican II about each person in their office and their, their state in life doing what is proper to them, but only what is proper to them. So do what you're supposed to do, but only what you're supposed to do. Have this hierarchical arrangement of things, and everybody together forms an image of Christ. And then Christ is offered to the Father uh, in his mystical body, priest Corporate and worship. Corp, well, corporate, yeah. Corpus, right? That's the, it means a body doing, we get the word corpse from that, but not a dead body. We want to be a live body filled with, with Christ's life. 
And so all these things are important. Um, and he's very clear that they have to be sanctioned by the church. You don't do anything without permission of your bishop and what the, the um, Pope allows. Um, but that this is how Christ's life is given. And so there's devotions, which are great. They lead you back to the liturgy. And then there's the liturgy, which is uh, inspired by all your enthusiasm from, uh, from your devotions. God in you, right? Isn't that entheos? Entheos, yeah, the word enthuse comes from that. So you're very often enthusiastic. Oh, why, Jesse. thank you. Theos or Thusia, I learned this. We mentioned David Fagerberg a lot, but he's so formative on all of us. Thusia in Greek is the sacrificial smoke. So when an animal was brought for sacrifice, they would burn the body on the altar and the smoke would rise up to heavens. And that, how else could you get you know, this big ox up in the sky to the gods? So they would burn it and be carried by the smoke. So Theos... Uh, it means God, but entheos is to have this sacrificial smoke or the God's sort of present Holy Spirit put in you. Mm-hmm. And when you're enthusiastic, hopefully it's because of Christ's life in you and not because of your own fallen passions. Now, uh, Father uh, Douglas Martis, who uh, former director of the Liturgical Institute, he also mentioned that he uh, at some point had a connection with Dorothy Day. And this is kind of what you're talking about, this social, social worship. Um, and he talks about... Um, you know, uh, the the liturgy being, you know, social in, in of itself, and we get a lot of that social justice. and Right, and social justice is the more modern word. They didn't really use that in Virgil Michael's time. It was social reconstruction or social um, regeneration because he looked around and said, here's this great image of the kingdom of God where everybody's in right relationship and they're all filled with Christ's life. This is what will happen at the end of time. But he looks around and he says, this is not really happening. You know, mm-hmm. Pius X himself said we, went, we have to um, refound. Instaurare is not just uh, remake, but it's like to refound, like to refound a city, uh, the, the true Christian spirit in the world. And the only place you can get it is from the grace of God. And the primary place of getting that is from the liturgy. So you can do all the social work you want, but it's, if it's not in love and it's not coming out of a regenerated person filled with Christ's life, then it's just going to, fizzle out or it's going to become a job from you know that the government pays you for um, compared to the way someone loves their own child you know daycare is not the same as a mother's love no matter how good it is yeah but it's pretty close <laughs> well it's a second best <laughs> second best that's i always said over second best uh is it do you have anything else that you wanted to well he does one thing that almost none of the other liturgical reformers uh do and he asked the question, what is the object of worship? So we're, you know, in a sense. Well, that's a good question. We sort of say, oh, happy with Jesus, me and Jesus, me and Jesus. But really, what's the point? Uh, to worship God, right? Which, which person of the Trinity? Uh, the Father. Right, exactly. He says through the, the Son. The worship of the Father is the primary goal through the Son. I think. Oh, I just got you, that right. You quoted oh Virgil my. Michael almost perfectly. Wow. And he mentions how most of the prayers in the Mass are addressed to the Father through Christ. So many of the prayers, the, the priest will say, Father, we ask X, Y, and Z in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of us, I think, even to this day, we want to see the Eucharist confected licitly and validly, which is great. Licit and, we, licit and cool. Licit and cool and valid. But sometimes we just stop there. It's like, God the Father, well, that's, maybe there's a picture of a guy with a white beard up on the ceiling, and that's it. But the access to the Father is what the Christ, Christ the bridge builder, uh, does. The Pontifex. Right. So he, he Ooh, episode Pontifex one. Pontifex Maximus, right? So the greatest bridge builder of all the bridge builders. 
So he brings in the Holy Spirit too and says it gives efficacy to the powers of Christ. So there's Christ who does these things, but it's the Spirit who allows them to be real. And so the liturgy is the life of the divine Godhead, all three persons of the Trinity happening on earth, which is a divine society. Nobody in the persons of the Trinity is, is giving them wages below minimum or kicking them in the head because they're mad or refusing to do their part or refusing to sanctify or refusing to offer or refusing to be a source. They're all in perfect relationship. So our job is to be part of that divine society. And the liturgy takes part in this divine society and trains us to be like God. And how cool is that? It's, it's licit and cool. And you know what? I, I guess I never really thought about why Vatican II happened. And, you know, just kind of growing up, I was, you know, glad to have the Mass said in vernacular and just heard people like Kevin say, like, how horrible it was, not knowing what was going on and everything. And, but, uh, but I never knew why, why it happened. And it's, it's really nice to look at the insight and to see how much impact, you know, great minds can have on the decision. And, and, and the other thing is people want to say that the church moves so slow. I mean, Virgil Michael, you said, was in the early 1900s. Uh, Guardini was kind of at the turn of the century as well, right? Although he lived a long time. He lived right up to the time to of Vatican II. 64, so, I mean, so a lot of these guys didn't even really get to see what this would end up looking like. But this is, this is like a century of work that is happening. It's, it's a part of that. You know, if you're interested in doing this hermeneutic of, uh, of reform and restoration, I mean, the, the liturgical movement isn't all of it, but it is a part of it. And to see the liturgy today with the proper hermeneutical lenses is to understand these, uh, these great thoughts of the, these figures. And we've gotten active down pretty well. I mean, most people are responding and singing, doing that. But we, have we gotten conscious down very well? Yeah, that's what I was, I was just going to say that, too, is like, um, you know, when Vatican II happened and then we had the, gen, the, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, it wasn't like instantly poof, like, these were implemented exactly the right way. We are still figuring out and processing. Or and even if they things. were, even if they were implemented exactly the right we wouldn't way, be that ready. does not mean the same thing that everybody understands what all of that means. Right, we wouldn't be ready for it. I mean, it's just, Chris, like you said, um, I, I forget which episode it was, but you, if you were just to be thrown in heaven, like you just wouldn't be prepared to be <laughs> to be there. You know, the, the raindrops would be really hard on your skin and mm-hmm. you just wouldn't you wouldn't totally be ready. And so it's a process and it's it's guided. We have to understand that it's guided by the Holy Spirit. Um, but, you know, people want to jump to that. The church takes forever for something. But. I, I like to see the insight of these these great minds on yeah. what what has affected the liturgy. Tell your parishioners, tell your kids, tell your spouse, tell, tell your, your wife, <laughs> tell your kids, <laughs> tell everybody around here, because this is the central message. Right? The life of Christ is available to you in the liturgy, and the way you do it is not just by thoughtlessly going through the text, but going through the text as the externalization of your interior reality, which is God. I'm not you. And I want to be like you. I give myself to you to make me like you. This is the surrender language. How do I do that? By joining myself to the offering of Christ. And it, that's all you have to do. You don't, even, you don't have to do cartwheels. You don't have to swing from the ceiling. You don't have to carry heavy loads. You don't have to sacrifice animals. Have the interior intention of mind and heart joined to the perfect offering of Christ. It's not, I, ugh, can't get any easier than that, really. Well, and Virgil Michael is a great source for this. We've talked about, we tried to, to do a Romano Gardini uh, podcast on the style of the liturgy, and we found his text is very difficult to understand, or Otocausal, some of his things are very difficult to understand. Virgil Michael writes so beautifully and accessibly 
he really is a must read for anybody wanting more information. Where, yeah, where can they, where can our listeners, I mean, we, where, where can they find his writings? Well, at Liturgy of the Church, most of these books are out of print, but you can get them by looking online at the used bookstore. There's, he wrote a, a bunch of books. One's called Christian's, Christian Social Reconstruction. One's called Life in Christ. One's called My Sacrifice and Yours. And then he has a whole bunch of little series, uh, the Christ Life series, it's called. And um, then he translated Lambert Baudouin's Liturgy of the Life of the Church. There's need, a lot of stuff out there. We need to get Kevin to republish some of these things. All right. Uh, well, I think it's time for us to answer another liturgy question. All right. Because Virgil Michael said in his foreword, every Catholic layman has a full right to know things of the liturgy that pertain to him. Yeah, so we're going to enact that. Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay, so this week we have a question that was uh, proposed to Chris way back in May. If you remember, our, I think it was our first podcast, uh, you had mentioned that it, back in May, you had gotten a question, this is May 2016, and somebody found out that St. Patrick's Day uh, landed on a Friday in Lent of 2017, and they already wanted to know if they could eat meat on that Friday, if it was a feast of St. Patrick. So can you provide some insight into that, Chris? I've had... 11 months to find the answer to this question. Because it's corned beef, I guess, is really what it comes down yeah. to. And I remember as a kid growing up in New York that Cardinal O'Connor then gave permission in the Archdiocese of New York for people to eat meat on St. Patrick's Day and a Friday. And I just thought he was being nice. I didn't know there was a whole larger theological question involved. What was the, why did he give the permission though? Do you remember? Well, St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York is St. Patrick's Cathedral because St. Patrick is the patronal it's the patron of the Archdiocese of New York. So that's ah. their patronal feast. So it's not just a Friday and we like St. Patrick. It's actually a solemnity in the Diocese of New York. What is Chicago's patron? It could be a holy name. I don't know. Well, the cathedral's holy name. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. Is that, I, is that's that a generally? question we never <laughs> find the answer to. <laughs> this next question comes from the liturgy guy. Stop asking <laughs> me questions I don't know the answer to. All right, so go back. To but the real question is a solemnity, right? A solemnity is the highest order of celebration, and you don't deny yourselves things, even in a penitential season, on a solemnity. And so they would sing the Gloria, for instance, even though it's Lent, or they would have a higher level of um, liturgical fullness, even though it's Lent, because it's a solemnity. 
Yeah, so here, here's, the, here's one way to answer this question, is that, uh, and this is Canon uh, 1251, it says, abstinence from meat is to be observed on all Fridays unless a solemnity should occur on a Friday. So the instance that uh, Dennis is mentioning in the Archdiocese of New York, or uh, it, uh, there's what, what we call proper solemnities. So for example, the patronal feast day of a diocese or archdiocese, or even the uh, your parish, right? So if I'm if if your parish is Saint Patrick Parish, whoa, really? That is a solemnity if you are a Saint Patrick's parishioner in that yeah. parish. In that parish, right? So uh, huh. that's a solemnity for you, but not for the Saint Paul parishioner across. And this doesn't uh, need to be town. stated by the bishop or anything. No, no, so. this is already given in in the code and in the uh, in combination with the general norms on the liturgical so, year and so calendar. So if you're if you go to Saint Jude's. Saint, the feast day of St. Jude's is a solemnity on that day. Yes. Right. Even though it wouldn't be normally a solemnity. Right. Correct. So if it's a Tuesday in the middle of the week, everybody else is a ferial day and they have their two candles and it's low, kind of low liturgy. That's your solemnity in your wow. parish. And you should celebrate it with the six candles. and the. Because the I used to work at a St. Patrick. I should let them know this. They probably don't know. Well, th- this is uh, something that many places don't know, that a, a local parish's title so Saint, mine is St. Philip's on May 3rd. That's a solemnity for us in that parish. And the anniversary of the dedication of that church, you know, whatever day that may have happened, uh, is also a uh, solemnity in that church. There's so many churches in Chicago. I could just like hop around church just shopping, find one. Jesse. It's find not, not just because you're near there. It's because oh, you're actually a parishioner. A parishioner. Of that parish. Okay, got so it. So that's one way where you could end up eating uh, meat on a, on a Friday in Lent is if your parish or diocese. <laughs> liturgy, guys. <laughs> finding loopholes in the liturgy. <laughs> Since 2016. <laughs> Another way is, and this is, this is happening in many places, you'll have to check with your own local diocese, is the bishop is granting, I think, think the word properly would be a dispensation from uh, the abstinence on meat on that day. So even if you're not in St. Patrick's Parish or in the Archdiocese of uh, New York, uh, your bishop may have granted uh, a dispensation so that you could uh, eat meat on that day. But this would be relative to your particular diocese. And probably what will happen at the same time is your bishop will say, you know, if, if you wish to observe the uh, solemnity of St. Patrick. In our in our country, it's a, it's a what commemoration, Dennis, or optional memorial of St. Patrick, but we call it the feast of, of uh, St. Patrick on that day. You can, but you should do something else in its stead. So if you're going to eat meat, then you should do something else uh, of a penitential nature. And in fact, really, this is this is uh, uh, the law on every Friday throughout the year, Lent or not, is supposed to be an abstinence be from meat or. If you're going to eat meat, you should do something differently. So, all right. So, I got to add something to this uh, question because I'm just curious. Um, every Sunday is a solemnity, so you have these solemnities during Lent. Uh, do you have to do your Lenten promises or whatever doing during uh, on Sundays? And I guess if there are solemnities, because I think one year um, Saint Joseph's was a solemnity. Uh, during oh, yeah. Lent. We know last it was last year, March 19th, was on a Friday. Could you eat a cheeseburger on that day? If it was a solemnity, it yeah. It was a solemnity. For the yes. whole church? So, yes, you could, yeah. What, but what about your personal Lenten promises? Dennis? Well, promises are not binding, but Sunday's a solemnity. So you could even deny yourself the possibility of uh, enjoying things on a Sunday, but... Properly speaking, a solemnity means you rejoice. You you rejoice with the church, you feast with the church, and you fast with the church. And the church gives you the norms for that. Yeah. Well, actually, there does. Well, you're right. Well, on not your, norms, on, by the yeah, principles. But you, but your own uh, uh, resolutions aren't really uh, uh, 
codified or legislated like that. But for example, in the But if in the I wanted to of, codify my own... You, you could have codified. God on Friday. Okay, got it. Codified. Oh. <laughs> uh, we, have a, we have a church in the Diocese of La Crosse that is uh, being dedicated on March 19th, which is a Sunday in Lent. And w- when they get to the part where the uh, Litany of the Saints is sung, it says that all kneel during the litany except on Sundays. Even Sundays during Lent, everybody remains standing because this is just another example of what you're saying, Dennis, that, I mean, this is a day of, uh, of resurrection and rejoicing. And, you know, even when it was a little bit tricky math, how you get 40 days out of Lent, and sometimes they account for the Sundays, sometimes they don't account for the Sundays. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's hard. It's, it's difficult, as far as I can tell, how you, how you get things to add up to 40. Um, so yeah, it so it uh, it varies. People of good faith disagree on this. Do Sundays count as days of Lent? Can you take the day off and eat your ice cream or cod or whatever it is, Jesse? Right. Uh, the the church really doesn't say. It'd be up to your up up to you and God. That's that one point. of the things. That's my promise is that I will sacrifice. I'll just eat cod every day because I don't want it. But well, you could have a rigorous approach, with a sort of deeply ascetic approach, and say, I'm going to make this vow or this promise, and that's fine. But the church really doesn't ask us to live as Puritans, even during Lent. We're not Puritans, so we delight in things on the feast days of Lent, and Sundays are the, Sundays of solemnity. Yeah, that's Lent. what I've always heard, because it because you should take delight uh, the, that that Easter, we are the Easter people, and you should have... You should have a delight that day. So if you gave up coffee, having a cup of coffee on a Sunday, just I think it helps the mind understand what is Sunday, what is it for, why does it exist for us liturgically, and I think it can help that process. So we're not just being liturgical wusses here. This is this is the church no, recognizes our human nature. We are trying to find loopholes. That's what we're doing. So <laughs> we're also not being liturgically permissive either. Right, right. We're, yeah, we're, we're licit but cool. We're <laughs> <laughs> operating on genuine principles that we want to do, we do what the church wants us to right. do. Yeah. And it all, it all, it all um, makes sense, but you have to have that intention and understanding. So, all right. Well, um, the person who asked Chris that in <laughs> May 2016, I hope that answers your question. We took us a while to get to it, but we did. All right. If you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. And thanks for your patience. Yes. It might take nine months, but we'll get to it. Uh, Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.